Lake City Spa, right in the heart of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Call, text, or message Casey Boyle today for your one-on-one spa service. Choose between a membership rate or a daily special, and you'll get the best microderm abrasion, high-frequency, and microcurrent facials in Coeur d'Alene. Just imagine a full hour of relaxing and beneficial facials for just $45. If you have skin issues or care to be pampered by a professional, contact Casey today, podcast with none other than author Mike Murphy. Yeah. If you remember back to the Hot Cast One radio podcast, Albert and I, we recorded with Mike Murphy. It was a two-part series that was more informative than I would have ever imagined. Um, look back on that. Go to Hotcast One, and you'll hear that, uh, both of those podcasts, um, there. And we talk about him being a baseball player, him being a journalist, how he got into writing and being an author. Uh, he had also just released Section Roads and The Con Man. Um, you can find both those books at Mike Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-E-Y, books.com. Um, or else Amazon, you can get him as a set. He has the Time series, which my daughter, Bailey, is a huge fan of, and you will really enjoy those. Um, He talks about those books at the end of the podcast, but we talk about his new book that has just come out. He's going to have a book signing on September 9th, and his his information is all on his Facebook page, um, or else the Mike Murphy Books, uh, MikeMurphyBooks.com. His new book, we never knew just what it was, the story of the Chad Mitchell trio. Um, this is a this is a book that was inspired from Mike's youth. They this is a group that two of the guys were from Gonzaga here, right here in Spokane, Washington, that were a part of the Glee Club, and they formed a group. Um, there's some ins and outs, and you know another person in, another person out, you know. He'll he'll tell you all about that, and the book will go into greater depth. But it's about folk music and that era, and this being the bee's knees when it comes to folk music. Um, they had a 20-year break, and a lady needed a group for a reunion benefit, I'm guessing, and she was able to pull these guys together, and the fans went nuts. And nuts means they went bonkers. So you're you're going to enjoy this podcast. Um, if you are a fan of folk music, um, you will really enjoy this book. Uh, please get it. MikeMurphyBooks.com. Um, again, M-U-R-P-H-E-Y, Murphy. Or Amazon. Um, the Killing Time series. 
the con man and section roads. I'm still reading section roads. I'm a horrible reader. My brain just starts wandering like a, a squirrel on cocaine and it's tough for me to read, but, um, I, uh, I'm still making my way through there and my daughter has read all of them. She loves them and is waiting for the new one to come out, um, taking time. So she's, she's excited for that. So take my word from her word. The time series is awesome. Um, and if you're a fan of folk music, you're going to love the Chad Mitchell trio. Uh, we never knew just what it was. So check it out. Um, I'll link that up all on the Facebook page and the Instagram here of little extra Lambo. Um, as well as that book signing, uh, September 9th doors open at five 30, take your masks, please. That's all they ask. They will have an indoor event as well as an outdoor event. Um, let me see if I can find out where it was. I think it's at the Spokane opera house. And I am I'm searching on this on his Facebook, but I I believe it's the Spokane Opera House is where it's at. So um, doors open at five thirty. It'll be about a two hour event. Please bring your mask, um, and uh, you will enjoy it. It's going to be an autograph signing. Um, I'm sure he'll talk about it. They will have some folk groups there performing. So make a night of it. Dress up you and the wife, you and the girlfriend you wife and girlfriend make, make an interesting night of it and, uh, go have some dinner, have some wine and, uh, and have a good show. So September 9th, um, again, uh, little extra Lambo was happy to have Mr. Mike Murphy. Okay, your mic is good. My mic is good. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, a little different setup than what we had last time. Yeah. We had we had what? Yeah, we Mike set up you in were your at my house. yeah. You were at your house, yeah. but I think we brought mics over and yeah. and had them set up like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, this is a lot lot better setup and a lot more expensive than the last time we we had spoke. So um, we're sitting here with with Mike Murphy. Um, author, what journalist, baseball player, <laughs> lots yeah. of other things. If yeah. you listen back to the Hotcast One Radio podcast, you can listen to parts one and two of that with Mr. Murphy. And you have another new book out. I do. Tell us about the book. Uh, the name of the book is "We Never Knew Just What It Was: The Story of the Chad Mitchell Trio." Uh, the Chad Mitchell Trio was one of many groups to emerge right at the start of the folk music era in the late 50s and early 60s. And two of their members uh, basically came from Gonzaga, um, uh, Mike Koblick and Chad Mitchell. And so they, they have long-standing ties to Spokane. Um, and the interesting thing about their story, well, there are several interesting things that made me want to write the book, but... Um, I think the, the, the main thing is they were uh, vocally, harmonically better than anybody else on the folk scene, anyone. Uh, musically, no one could touch them, especially early in the folk music era. But 
they didn't have the commercial success that um, most of the other, or a number of the other groups like Peter, Paul, and Mary or people like that had because of the material they chose. They sang a lot of uh, satirical stuff, political stuff, uh, things very much related to the to the emerging uh, social conscience movement that was the 60s. And I grew up in the 60s. I graduated from high school in 1969. And you mentioned my passions, uh, writing and baseball. Um, my other passion is music. And um, these guys, I, my story, my relationship to them is like literally thousands of other people people my age who grew up in small uh, conservative communities kind of isolated from a broader culture. And listening to their music and the things that they sang about and, and talked about um, fit right in <laughs> with the 60s and uh, shaped a lot of my values, uh, social and political values, that have stayed with me most of my life. Uh, and they just, they, I, I probably heard them first when I was in the seventh or eighth grade. And some of their music, when, when I was that young, I didn't really completely understand the nuances. But as I got older, I did. And they, and again, it's the same story. There are literally thousands of people just like me. These guys uh, helped change the way they thought, made them aware of things, inspired people to go out and, you know, and play the guitar and form folk trios so we could sing their music and all that sort of thing. And so when I came to Spokane um, <clears throat> in 1982, one of the first things I found out was that Mike Koblick uh, lived here. And he was, in fact, the director of entertainment facilities for Spokane. That means he booked the Opera House and the Coliseum and all the other venues like that. He was also real big. In, he, he, he was originally hired to be uh, the entertainment director for Expo 74. And as a result of that, he had a huge influence. That's on a huge project. Expo 74 and on its effect on the city. Uh, so he's a he's a huge part of, of Spokane uh, history and culture, and so at that time, uh, it happened at a time I was writing a, a column uh, in the Chronicle for the Chronicle, and he was someone I wanted to talk to. So I sought him out and did a column, and we got to know each other a little that way, and then uh, in the early nineties, uh, Chad. Uh, Mitchell moved back to Spokane. So I had an idea of doing a, a freelance uh, magazine piece, trying to sell a freelance ma magazine piece about the Chad Mitchell trio and this theme that I talked about, the fact that they were better than anyone, but because the uh, radio stations and television wouldn't allow them to perform or play their most popular songs... Because it, it was too controversial? Too controversial. Okay. It limited uh, their exposure. Now, where they were huge was on college campuses. 
they toured college campuses all over through the 60s. And and that, that I can believe, yes. And, and, they were, and they were very popular. And so that generation understands their music and knows how good they are. Now, uh, people who were a little older who didn't, you know, just watched TV and saw them on Ed Sullivan or Dinah Shore or all that, thought they were these, you know, just nice, clean-cut boys who sang traditional folk songs. And they did that, and they did it very well. But that wasn't the meat of what they were all about. What brought them together in the first place? Uh, <laughs> that's a re- that's the crux of this book. Without giving away no, too no, much no, of the no, book, no. <laughs> no. It, it is what brought them together and what tore them apart. They were both members of the Gonzaga Men's Glee Club in the fifties. The Gonzaga and 40s, the Gonzaga Men's Glee Club was bigger than any sport Gonzaga wow. hosted. And that's that's crazy to think about today, you yeah, know, with basketball. It is. And it is. But I mean, they were it was a it was it was a not a scholarship thing. It was just, you know, the amateur kids got and they had a, a director named Lyle Moore, who was a real taskmaster. But he was really good and and the Gonzaga men's glee club sang on the Ed Sullivan show and they you know and things like that they toured and they were they were they were really good well Mike and Chad were both members and they did a they had to do a they had a like a campus days type of event weekend where all the different clubs had a booth and had to have something and uh, that they did or to, to show something about their club so Lyle Moore told Mike and Chad I want you guys to to do the booth and sing. So they got a third guy and a, and a guitar player. And that was, that was coincided with the emergence of Tom Dooley. In 58, the Kingston Trio recorded Tom Dooley. Before Tom Dooley, the general public cared nothing about folk music, didn't know much about it. It was a, an obscure sort of thing, still very important in American history, but, but it wasn't at all popular. Tom. That was that was the big band swing. Well, it yeah, was maybe it after was the swing. emergence. It was the emergence of of rock and roll. It was it was a really nice, polite type of rock music. Type of it was the, it was that that evolution from the big band sound to the small group sound, which eventually became the Beatles. Uh, but it was also pretty boring. Okay, <laughs> I mean, the music was nice, but. They didn't say anything, and and um, so uh, Tom Dooley caught the whole industry by surprise. They sold millions of records, and all of a sudden, every <laughs> record company in America was looking for a folk singer, looking for folk singers. So anyway, they they did that, and they sang some some uh, Kingston Trio stuff, Tom Dooley, and a couple other things at this booth. Well, there was a lay priest who heard them, and he was just blown away uh, by them. And he started booking them to local things. Job's Daughter Convention, uh, you know, the basement of the Davenport, they had a big bright club there, and, you know, just little things around here, and they were were playing for beer money. And the summer of 1959, the priest had to go to New York City to uh, undergo chaplain training at a, at a, at a 
place outside New York. And from Gonzaga, from, from Gonzaga, and they they were uh, uh, they were the government was paying his way and all that, and so he he told Mike and uh, Chad, and that time a third guy was singing with him named Mike Pugh. Uh, he said, "Look, why don't you guys come with me, and we'll go to New York, and and we'll get you a recording contract." <laughs> and so they didn't have anything better to do, so they had a their guitar player was a grocery clerk, and so he took a leave from Rose Hours, and they all got <laughs> in the priest's car, and they drove to New York. And along the way, because they were broke, they didn't have any money. They had maybe 150 bucks among them. Um, the priest would, at each place they stopped, would hustle someplace for them to play. Okay. And get them to, no, no, we don't need money. They just need to practice. Uh, uh, if you could get them dinner, you know, and then the people would just eat it up and you know there'd be some donations or somebody'd say hey I have a motel you can stay here tonight something and so they'd go on their way and a part of the priest's sale was these guys are going to New York to play on uh, to, to be on the Ed Sullivan show which that was a lie do some rosaries <laughs> but it got them there and without too much of the detail in the book two weeks after they got New York to New York they had a record contract uh, and again, they were it's just because they were so good. They were they were great choral singers. They understood harmony, they understood blend. And early in the folk music era, there was a, a huge argument about folk music purists. The hardcore folk music people hated the folk music era, the emergence of it, of it, because for them, in order for something to be genuinely a called a folk song, it had to, you know, originate someplace back in history in Ireland or England or, or the Appalachians or someplace like that. It had to originate there. And either the singer had to either experience the event, him or herself, or be of a direct lineage from someone who okay. was. So, but... Those songs were hard to listen to. <laughs> I mean, they were long and boring and had these nonsense lyrics and stuff. Yeah. So Kingston Trio came along. They adapted the story of Tom, a guy named Tom Duda, which, which they made Tom du Dooley. And <laughs> I was interested to find out that that song, the, the original one, was was part of a genre genre called Appalachian lover murder ballads <laughs> so there must have been a whole lot of interesting lovers get murdered uh, interesting but, <laughs> but anyway so uh the the, the the guys who understood a little bit about showmanship a little bit about harmony and everything were welcomed and I mean, they were because these other people uh, like the pure folkies sang like they were in pain or like it was something excruciating. These guys were showmen. They didn't play instruments. So they had little subtle choreographies and little things that did what were just very funny. And so they fell under the wing of uh, Harry Belafonte, uh, who, booked who helped them get a booking in a nightclub called the Blue Angel, which is a class of the class in New York City. At first, they couldn't get any any bookings because everyone loved the way they sound. But 
they w- didn't have original material, so they had to find original material. They hooked okay. him up with a guy named Milt Oaken, who worked with Belafonte and was an arranger and a director and uh, all that. And, and so he worked with them. He was their musical director. And like many uh, early folkies, people who were interested in it, he was uh, an avowed lefty because folk music emerged from the Depression. Uh, and among the poor classes. The, the, the Depression, as I always put it this way, it, it was poor people suffering because of the follies of the rich. Okay, that's whole greed, collapse, and slot See, I would have thought that would have been the blues. No, well, that, was, that was the black. That was the, the black culture. Okay. Folk was more uh, the, 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 the poor hill people kind of culture. Okay. Uh, uh, and, and then the kind of the, would, the, would it be fair to say that the combination of the two made up bluegrass? Well, it, it, bluegrass was a form of its own. No, blue, bluegrass is, is one of the true, truly pure American music, okay. kinds of music. And it, it emerged in its own, in its own direction. Uh, I would say it'd be more like blues and and uh, uh, folk, the, the the story songs and the blues and and that whole thing, merged to become what we would recognize now as blues, uh, and and with a big influence on country. Okay. Um, and that's kind of the date today when you're talking about purists. A lot of people say like guys like Jason Aldean and you know Morgan Whalen, they're they're not country. You got to be George Strait, George Jones, <laughs> Merle Haggard. That's real country. Yeah. Well, see, I'm one of those guys. <laughs> I mean, I, I, oh, I trust me. I grew up with eight tracks and records yeah, of no. of Whalen Jennings. I, I, I and all love that. country, but but I think what country music is now. I love. I love an earlier era of country. What country music is now is it went through a period uh, with, uh, I think, kind of led by Brad Paisley, who's a phenomenally talented guitarist Guitarist, who can play anything. But in the 70s and 80s, rock and roll kind of became the cutting edge out there pure musicianship uh, in music. I mean, fabulous uh, players. Uh, The music was really more important than the words uh, and all that sort of thing. Well, Paisley is so good. I think he kind of started it along the way to where it is today. Now, I I think country today is on the cutting edge of that same sort of thing, where rock and roll was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. It's not something I particularly enjoy. I mean, it's edging a little too much toward rap mm-hmm. and tunelessness yep. for my, for my yep. taste. It's a lot more music yeah. for the ear, not the, not the voice. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 yeah, not, <laughs> and I don't know how that gets us away from this, <laughs> from where we were. Uh, 
you've been downtown to the new dry fly location. The outdoors are calling. They said to bring more dry fly. And there's no better place than to be downtown Spokane to grab your bottles, your canned cocktails, and your merch from their new location downtown. Right on the corner of Monroe and Riverside at 1021 West Riverside in the heart of downtown Spokane, Washington. You will not be disappointed with that canned cocktail. You will not be disappointed in the vodka, the bourbon, the whiskey, all from Dry Fly Distilling. Check them out, dryflydistilling.com or on their Facebook page. Crave Eats Drinks Nightlife, downtown Spokane. They are the sponsor of this segment of the show. Go check out Jacob and the staff. Check out the cauliflower bites, the pretzel bites, their well drinks, and all of the whiskey and liquor that you would want. Even those little jello shots. Check them out. Downtown Spokane. Craves Eat Drink Nightlife. Uh, but um, the history of, of folk music was there were two groups, the Almanac Singers and the Weavers. During the late 30s through the Depression, the 40s, they kept folk music alive, and they were very much leftists. They were they flirted with uh, the American Communist Party during the Depression in the early, you know, in that time, which many poor people did because that's the only thing they saw any hope, you know, was that that kind of philosophy, and then that took. Then in the fifties, America took a hard right turn. Joe McCarthy emerged, and that started the blacklists, which affected uh, movies, artists, singers. Uh, McCarthyism was, you should be punished for what you think, not what you do. Which is not what America stands for at all. No. And and, uh, so a lot of these guys, like Pete Seeger of the Almanac Singers and the Weavers, uh, you know, they were blacklisted. Uh, they went before the uh, House on American Activities Committee, and they were asked to name names. You know, who among you is all this kind of stuff? And and Seeger was one of the few who most people just took the fifth, you know, because they could do that and skate. He wouldn't. He said, uh, "You don't have any right to ask me that question, but I'd be glad to sing you a song." <laughs> and he he was convicted of ten counts of contempt of Congress, and would have served ten years in prison if he hadn't been. Uh, uh, pardoned. Okay. Later. But anyway, that was uh, where folk music, more than any other music, is bound up in that part of American history because it wasn't just pretty songs because it said stuff. And a lot of people didn't like what it said, a lot of it, uh, the, the, the establishment at that time. Um, and that's what attracted it to me. You know, a kid in the 60s, uh, I like songs about, you know, making fun of Richard Nixon and, and uh, Barry Goldwater and, and uh, you know, speaking out against racism and, and ridiculing, the, you know, some of the uh, hardcore racists in the South in government and things like that. Um, 
but also they you know said a lot of uh, talked about sang about a lot of other stuff um so anyway this 50s revival of the folk of folk music and and what is the folk music era came along and uh it lasted it was it was in a tailspin by 65 from 59 to 65 folk was at its peak then the Beatles came to the Ed Sullivan show in 64 and basically changed everything. Uh, but then in uh, uh, the, the folk era hung on until 67. And after that, the only two groups with any relevance, and by this time they had both evolved a long way from folk, uh, from pure folk, what they did before was Peter, Paul, and Mary, and a little to a little extent the Kingston Trio. But... The crux of the book is the relationship between these two guys, these two Spokane guys, Mike Coddick and Chad Mitchell. Um, they didn't know each other when they got thrown together on this thing. They knew that they really sung well together. They liked that. They liked all that about it. But within a couple of years, they found out they were polar opposites to a polar opposite people. And uh, for a number of reasons, they just really became estranged. They, you know, the one thing that they, they, they were angry with each other, they didn't spend time with each other when they didn't have to, but the thing that they never compromised on was the music. They still loved the rehearsals. They, they had these very creative rehearsals. They didn't write anything down. They worked out all these complex harmonies just in these th these rehearsal sessions, and then they took them to the stage. Uh, Mike and Chad, uh, Mike is a, you know, I mean, he came back to Spokane. He became a, you know, a stalwart member of the community. He, uh, you know, had this job he had for 30 years with the city and doing all those things. Very highly respected guy, both in uh, the Spokane and within the music industry. Uh, Chad <laughs> went to North Central, or went to uh, Lewis and Clark. He was the state 880 champion in his senior year in high school. He was the golden boy. He was, he was the guy who could sing. He was the athlete. He had the prettiest girlfriend. He had all those things. But he was also not well off. And he had kind of a secret life, you know, doing some scrambling and stuff. And anyway, when, when Shad hung on to the group until the middle of 65, and then he quit. Uh, ostensibly to go have a solo career, but he really didn't want to do that. The guy who was managing him wanted that for him. Um, when he left the person that they found to replace him in the trio was John Denver, and that was John Denver's big break. Wow. And John uh, was in the trio then from mid-'65 until Mike left because he had a family in 67, and uh, John hung on with a group called Denver, Boyce, and Johnson, for a year after that, uh, and, and and then folk music was essentially over. Uh, 
And there was a third member, uh, Joe Frazier, was who they got to replace Mike Pugh when they went back to New York because Pugh didn't want to go. Joe was a, a very interesting guy on his own. He uh, he had a rough, hard scrabble childhood in a in a coal town on the, on the East Coast. So he knew all about unions and he knew all about all that stuff. And he was a he was a real leftist. I for that, and, and he came into the trio, great voice, fit very well, uh, but by the time John Denver came on, he was into some uh, substance abuse stuff, and started missing, uh, missed a couple of performances, and so Mike and John fired him, and he went away, uh, and it, it, he has some lost years, but he ended up in uh, Key West, Florida, in the company of Tennessee Williams and James Herlihy, who at the time were members of the uh, emerging uh, gay intelligentsia in America. Uh, Williams, of course, was one of America's greatest playwrights. Herlihy, at the time Joe was there, was at the top of his game. He, his, he, had, he wrote uh, Midnight Cowboy, uh, which had, you know, the screenplay won an Oscar right around then and everything. But so here's, here's Joe, who, who had always had sexual identity issues, uh, hanging around with these, these two kind of hedonistic guys who have serious drug and alcohol problems of their own, as many creative people do. And, he, and, he, and they somehow convinced him that he or helped him find his faith again, and they pulled some strings and got him into the Yale Divinity School, mm. where he emerged a couple of years later as a gay Episcopal priest. And uh, so you got these three guys, and you know that they, they've had this bad parting. And so, and, and the book talks about Chad as opposed to Mike. Mike went and became an upright member of their community, Chad went to, went to Mexico and tried his hand at smuggling marijuana okay. <laughs> and ended up in a federal prison for a few months. Uh, but anyway, you've got these real disparate stories, and Joe's off here with... You know, Sounds like there's a bunch of different stories yeah. all around. And then in the 80s, there, there came uh, the folk music uh, revival era, the, the uh, reunion era, where... They started getting these guys, hey, come back together. Let's do some folk concerts and all that. Well, the one group that everybody agreed would never be together again was the Chad Mitchell Trio because the parting of all the three of them was just too much. So uh, in uh, 86, there was a guy in Washington, D.C. named Dick Seary who had was known among the folk community, the, the old folkies, for keeping it alive, he had a radio show in Washington D.C., and he would he would keep getting these acts on and keep them before the public, and somehow, and he'd do these big concerts. Well, he, there was a twenty fifth uh, reunion concert that they were arranging, and and he the, a woman named Doris uh, Justice worked for him, and he told her, well, it wouldn't look right for me to do this to to have my own celebration to arrange my own celebration concert, so you do it and get the acts together. Well. So she called 
She hoped she could get one of them to come and sing. She called Joe, and Joe said, oh, I'd love to be there. I'd be there. She tracked him down because he was a priest, and he went, she went through the church and found him. And, but he had no idea where Mike uh, or Chad were. And so um, <clears throat> she knew uh, a member of the Brothers Four. The Brothers Four originated at the University of Washington, and she knew one of those guys was back in Seattle. And so she called him and said, did I hear that Mike Kobluck was in Washington someplace? And he said, yeah, you want his number? So she called Mike, and uh, then she had heard from someone how to, you know, where Chad was, and she called him, and basically he, she told both of them, he said he would if you, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they agreed, and, and, and they got this big concert up, and, and so she told uh, the guy, Dick Seary, that he told her, it's getting too big, you've got too many acts, this is going to go too long, you've got to cut some things out. And she said, well, I've got a surprise group, and uh, I'm going to give them a half an hour. And he said, I don't care, care who they are. They can't have an hour. You, know, you can't do this. And he was a real, you know, boy, I'm in charge. You don't mess with me type of guy. But he'd given her this responsibility. And she said, no, I'm not. This is what I'm going to do. And he got very angry with her. And he... Because he didn't believe. Or he didn't, no, he he didn't, didn't know, know who it was. But. No, he thought it was Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mm. He said, I, you know, I, I hear Peter, Paul, and Mary all the time. I know they're your surprise group. And, and in fact, a couple of days before the concert... They were talking, they were doing an interview with Peter and Mary about some different thing. And Sari said to Mary, he said, well, you know, I know you guys are the, the, the surprise group and that she's going to give you half an hour, but I don't think. And so Mary picked right up on it and she just said, oh, please, Dick, don't, don't tell anyone. Let's, let's keep the surprise good. <laughs> well, so she snuck him into town. And here's these three guys. They, she put them up at her house, and they're musicians. She brought their, their, their two string musicians in. And so they're all sitting there. They haven't spoken in 20 years, really. Haven't seen each other spoken in 20 years. And they're sitting around, and it's kind of awkward. And she says, well, I don't suppose you guys remember uh, uh, the harmonies to Four Strong Winds. And the musicians got out their instruments, and they sang, and it was like they'd never been apart. Wow. They were still as good. I mean, well, everyone That's else. It's amazing chemistry. And so then she had to keep it quiet, you know, keep them in hiding so she wouldn't spoil the surprise. And she had a bunch of disasters that are funny that almost did it. But their, their first kind of hit was a song called Lizzie Borden. And it's a song about, you know, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her father 40 whacks. And it was about the axe murderers in Massachusetts. <laughs> okay. And, and, and it was one of the first things that they ever did. And uh, the, the first big song led them down the path they went on. And, and Joe always did the thing, the, the poem at the first. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her father 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her mother 41. <laughs> and so the, that's the dark. Yeah. <laughs> that's dark, but curtains, it's making light. Curtains open on a stage. And there's another curtain behind it. You can't see anything. And then out of the Joe's voice, you know, comes Lizzie Borden took an axe. And it went crazy. Everybody went crazy and, and loved what they did. And that sparked uh, kind of a reunion era. And they sang for another 30 years. They don't sing anymore. They're in their mid-80s. 
but then, and again, they, <laughs> another funny coincidence is in this town of however population it is, they live two blocks apart, mm. which they didn't plan. Okay. <laughs> when Chad moved back, he bought a house. He's driving down the street one day, looks over in the garden, sees Mike and, why are you stalking me? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing here? I live here. How long have you lived here? Since 1969? Uh, so so it's, it's been a fascinating exercise in uh, getting to know them and their differences. And, you know, they're still not always comfortable with each other. But, you know, I... I I interviewed Tom Paxton for this. I don't know if you know who Tom Paxton is, but he's one of the great songwriters of the folk era and even now continues now. I mean, you can't name a group in the 60s, 70s, 80s that didn't do some of his songs. But he told me, you know, he said, you know, sometimes the only thing two people have in common is, you know, that talent and you'll go crazy if they don't use it. And uh, the, the, the name of the book, we never knew just what it was. It's is based on a Tom Paxton song, which the book is built around, and it was a song called The Marvelous Toy, and it's a, toy, a song about a father uh, who passes along a toy to, to his son, and the chorus goes, uh, um, I never knew just what it was, and I guess I never will. And that was as close to anything as those guys had of having a genuine hit. Uh, and the, the idea behind the title is it... We never knew just what it was, and and I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about them. Them. (laughs) Okay, and I was going to say that, too, that it sounds like they had that 20-year gap but never realized what actually they were doing or what how missed they were. Yeah. So once they came back and that place goes nuts when the curtains open up, that's just what it was. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's that's the the book. There's lots of... uh, fun stories in it. There's lots of some things I think that uh, Mike is not entirely comfortable with concerning Chad's history. But, you know, they each get to tell their own story. Uh, And uh, the wonderful thing about it is for the past three years, I've been able to re-immerse myself into the music of my youth and, and really remember how great it was how good these guys were and what kind of impact they had on on the whole generation. What was one thing that really surprised you about the group? Uh, Probably that they, that they weren't buddies, Uh, you know, as fans, either of athletes or performers or musicians, you know, we, we liked, we kind of idealize them and, and, and want them to be big buddies and really like each other. You know, we want them to be who we think they should be. And, uh, I mean, they're both great people. Uh, but Separately. But separately. But separately, you know. Some, there, there's a, and that's the ironic thing is as much as they might, want to go their own way <laughs> throughout this life, you know, now that, that, that this thing with them f- stretches from 1959 to, to today, 
um, fate just keeps thrusting them together on the same stage, and and neither of them have has ever been as good alone as they are together. Going back to a country group, you know, we can bring up Brooks and Dunn. Oh yeah, you know, separately they really weren't that good until they were together. And they come together every now and then, but I know different eras. Oh, but kick, bro- kick Brooks, what's the kicks and Ronnie Dunn? Uh, moon, the th- neon moon, neon moon. God, that is just a masterpiece when 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 Brooks sings it. I mean, he has an incredible voice. I've I've just I've been listening to that recently. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I have written down, uh, you know, the folk era, you said kind of went away, but then you had individual acts, you know, John Denver was a part of the group. Don, John Denver is kind of that lyrical storyteller, mm-hmm. Tom Petty, same thing. Mm-hmm. Do they come from that era or is that, well, are oh, they further uh, away from it? Uh, uh, well, it's all part of an evolution. The, the early rock, uh, see, folk the folk became folk rock. That was the transition that was made in from 67 into the 70s. And, oh, their original, uh, when, they, when their grocery store guitar player couldn't come back with them, they had to go find another guitar player. So they, so they got an 18-year-old kid, found an 18-year-old kid named uh, Jim McGuinn, who later changed his name to Roger McGuinn and formed the Birds. Okay. And... He, they created the folk rock sound, which was the 12-string uh, jingle jangly guitar sound that was folk rock. But the Mamas and the Papas, uh, the Love and Spoonful, uh, any, all, the, all the folk rock, uh, or you'd consider rock groups of the 60s and early 70s, came, emerged from the folk era. They were all folkies at first. And then they followed that trend to, uh, to folk rock, you know, which was uh, the birds and, and uh, well, tons of other, tons of other groups. It was, it was the music without the message, pretty much. And where can we find your, your book at? Well, uh, as of tomorrow, it'll be on sale at Auntie's. Uh, and it's also, uh, will be on sale. It's also now on sale on Amazon. Um, and I will mention that on September 9th, (laughs) just pulling it up, (laughs) (laughs) we are doing kind of the celebration of the book's publication, uh, at Spokane Opera House. Uh, and, uh, uh, that's going to be fun. We're going to have a big crowd and have some really interesting musicians show up. Uh, doors open at 5.30 at that, and yep. it is no charge to get in. No, no charge to get in. We are, uh, you know, we're concerned about uh, uh, coronavirus stuff and being careful with that, so we're going to have both inside and outside seating, and, and we'll ask people to have masks, and especially for the book signings and, and all that sort of thing. But yeah, we'll do about a two-hour program, which will, which will for an hour and a half, program and then, then some questions and then, then book signings okay uh and and uh, we've got a lot of people coming from out of town these guys have like i say a huge cult fan following so we get you know people
It'll be interesting to see because that's it's not my era at all. Yeah. So you know, just following along, I'm still trying to get through. Uh, what what's your first book? Um, Section Roads. Section Roads. I'm still it's right next to my bed. I'm <laughs> I'm slowly chipping away. I'm not I'm not the best reader because I get well, ADD. Gotta, but uh, what you ought to do is you ought to get uh, the con man. It's on audio. I have an audio book. Okay. Of that, and so you listen to it while you drive. Yeah, that would be the that would be the ideal thing right there because I could listen to audio books all day long. Yeah, well, and that's baseball. So yeah. Like that one. Um, so it's MikeMurphyBooks.com, uh-huh. uh, M-U-R-P-H-E-Y, yep. and you can check them there, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble? Uh, no, we're not. I'm not. I don't have a wide distribution. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm narrowly distributed on Amazon at this point. At some point, we may opt for the other, but you get a better deal from Amazon if you go exclusively with them okay. at, at first, so... Um, my daughter loves the other two books. Oh, does she? Um, tell us just quickly about those two. Uh, well, there's uh, Taking Time, Wasting Time, and now the third one is out. It's Killing Time, and it's my Physics, Lust, and Greed series. It's humorous uh, time travel, science fiction in the vein of Douglas Adams, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, and, uh, or uh, Christopher Moore or Tom Robbins there. So are people that I sort of uh, really admire their style and, and stuff like that. But they're, they're uh, aimed to be funny, uh, and uh, it it's involves time travel and some stories. And, um. <laughs> and she loved them. Okay. So she's excited for the third one to come okay. out. Um, she reads just like her mom does. Yeah. Page, 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 page. And she can fly through a book in a couple oh, right. days. I'm I'm jealous of of her and her ability to do that. I'm so glad to hear that. So, you've got a fan with her, and <laughs> and and I'm slowly making my way through the you know through my books. So, yeah. um, pleasure to have you on. I know you got another engagement to get to. Yeah, we got so a baseball game. I we got, got a game to get to. So, old, old man, I got to go get ready. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. This is fun. Mike, thank you for coming in. Um, please like. Subscribe, follow along, download that show. Um, It helps us all with that promotion, helps us with the sponsors, helps us with uh, keeping the track of the numbers. So follow along, download that show if you would, please. Mike, thanks again. Um, That is definitely an interesting book that you have written. You can definitely tell the passion that you have. Um, We never knew just what it was. The story of the Chad Mitchell trio. Thank you for coming on, sir. 